0: Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart.
1: Good morning and welcome to ShopCast, the radio show that spends all its time focused on what's happening in retail and all the latest trends around the consumer. I'm Michael Dart, and I'm your host, so thank you for joining me. I'm a partner at AT Kearney and also co-author of the book Retail Seismic Shift, that is the basis for a lot of the concepts and ideas that we'll be talking about during the course of the show. Really excited about today's show. I have a great guest joining me, uh, David Jaffe. Uh, David is chief executive of Asena. You may be more familiar with Asina from the diversified brands that are part of its portfolio. Uh, they include Ann Taylor, Loft, Lewin Gray, Maurice's, Dress Barn, Lane Bryant, Catherine's, and Justice. And if you add all the revenues up for those companies, it's about $6.6 billion. And that is larger than Lululemon, J. Crew, and a company like The Buckle combined. So David has a fabulous view on what's happening in retail today and possibly a unique view on what's happening in women's apparel. And we're going to be talking a lot about what's happening in retail. And one of the concepts, which we're going to dig deep into a little bit, is the idea of platforming. And the concept that retailers today, almost every consumer business, should think of itself as a platform. And what do we mean by that? Well, a platform is a business model that basically creates value by utilizing all of its assets – in a way that it facilitates exchange, commerce, uh, every type of transaction you can imagine to increase the value of those assets. Now, the best examples really exist in technology. So if you think about it, Apple, Google, Amazon even, have all considered themselves platform businesses. So the iPhone is a platform. On that platform, not only can you do what Apple would like you to do, but it's enabled all sorts of other businesses to utilize the assets that Apple's created to create their own business models. So Uber, of course, wouldn't exist without Apple and the ability to identify where an individual is. In fact, Uber wouldn't exist if they hadn't leveraged the technology of Google Maps. You wouldn't have Venmo and Square if you didn't have the Apple platform, and you wouldn't have Instagram and Snapchat, places like that. So that's, that's the concept of a platform where you have a bunch of assets and you try and utilize them, to create as much value, not only for yourself, but all the partners, all the users, the consumers, everybody who essentially comes to that particular platform. Now, when do you think the platform exists? Well, there's a number of situations uh, that businesses today should be looking at and saying, gosh, have I got untapped value inside my business because I've got some of these conditions that exist? Do I have underutilized assets? Whether or not that's back office, distribution, logistics, space, people, what assets am I not utilizing that potentially could create value to somebody else? Do they have high information content? Because if they have high information content, then potentially I could be liberating that and sharing that information for others. Can I add information, fun, or experiences to the asset to make it much more relevant to other people? Can people, could I imagine assets that I have being utilized by other people that would add fun, experiences? Um, Do I have a cost structure that potentially, while uh, supporting my business model, could be leveraged in a way that could support others? So this is the idea of platforming, and I think it's really important because in today's world, to take a static view on your business, on a retail structure, and say, we're just going to continue to do what we've done in a traditional fashion is no longer going to work because there are so many new businesses emerging. There's so many people thinking creatively about how to leverage Inside a company's assets, its, uh, its costs, its people, its information, that if you don't actually take advantage of that and do it yourself and think about new ways to create new businesses, then you're likely to find somebody else is going to do that and you're going to lose value. So with that, and that's one of the ideas, as I say, we'll talk about together with David. I'd like to formally introduce David. He has been CEO of Acena since 2002 Uh, He's actually been with the company since 1992, uh, worked in a number of different uh, senior roles before becoming chief executive, and also has experience as general partner at SIG Holdings and was a portfolio manager at Merrill Lynch. He's also a director of the National Retail Federation and the Baker Retailing Center at the Wharton School of Business. David, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Michael.
1: Well, the first question I love to ask everybody is, did you ever anticipate becoming a retailer, and uh, and what made you become a retailer?
2: Well, well, actually, Michael, if if you know the story, uh, my parents actually started Dressbarn, which was the precursor to Ascena, um, mm-hmm. and growing up in a retail family, I actually uh, vowed that I wouldn't become a retailer. You wouldn't <laughs> uh, become a retailer. The, first ten years of of my career uh were on Wall Street uh and not in retail uh, because uh growing up in retail you see what a challenging business it is uh, and I really felt uh my my career was going to go elsewhere uh so initially uh i I really did not think I was going to become uh an uh, a retail operator
1: did your parents want you to become a retailer did they get you involved in the operations early on in any formal way or you know was it uh uh, was it your choice eventually to start moving in that direction?
2: Well, they never pushed me, but but clearly with both of them um, involved in the business, uh, there was a lot of kind of uh, dinner conversation about the business growing up. Uh, uh, the business actually uh, began when I was, I was just two, so I literally grew up with it. And if, <laughs> if uh, you're old enough to remember gimbal tickets, I used to sort those uh, as a kid, uh, uh, at the end of the week, uh, but also uh, would go to the stores uh, with my folks and uh, watch them, uh, whether they were serving customers or uh, dealing with freight or uh, a floor set move perhaps and i 'd be running around uh, playing games and, and one of the games they gave me uh, was to uh, pick up uh, uh, you know needles or uh uh tickets or or whatever that were on the floor and that kind of began this whole uh uh lesson about retail is detail and it's all about making sure that everything's perfect for the customer. Uh and so uh as I grew up uh and then uh, started working in, in retail uh during high school and other jobs uh you know I kind of took that experience uh with me and, and really learned uh some of the, the fundamentals about retailing.
1: That's really interesting. So retail is detail was something that was just you know, imbued in you from an early age. Any other lessons? Quite often people will recount a story or an experience early on in their career that stuck with them as well about uh, what it takes to be successful in retail. Do you have uh, anything around that uh, that sticks out in your mind?
2: Uh, I would tell you two of the jobs that I had uh, in high school. Uh, one was scooping ice cream. Um, and another one was uh, selling cameras uh, in a um, kind of a discount department store. And, and both of those experiences really drilled into me uh, the fact that uh, customer service is everything. Uh, so in, in ice cream... Um, you know, if you wanted a tip or if you wanted the customer to come back, you had to make sure that you, you know, made a great cone for them and everything uh, was uh, handed over, you know, uh, perfectly without stuff dripping down or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. and, and on the camera side, uh, no camera sells itself. You know, it's a, it's a okay. bit of technology back then uh, that people didn't quite have their heads around, and so uh, you had to understand what their needs were, listen to them, talk to them about the uh, features of each style or, or, or model, I should say, and, uh, and basically sell it. So uh, those two experiences really uh, hammered in uh, at a very early age the importance of engaging with the customer uh, as well as the earlier comment I made about retail's detail. So I think those both set me up well for you know, a future in, in retailing.
1: It's really interesting. It does reinforce the need for uh, young people to almost get any type of job if you are interested in retailing and and consumer goods, almost any job early on inside uh, a retailer, because you're going to learn things and see things that uh, uh, you just can't uh, you can't learn when you're studying it from an academic perspective, and presumably right. when you get into management. Uh, right. It changes sort of that understanding. So So on that note, what do you think are the biggest changes facing young people today uh, looking for a career in retail from what you faced?
2: Well, you know, back when I started out, um, retail is much more of uh, a, a traditional uh, gut driven business. Um, And today, uh, just like every other business, it's evolved, and there's much more technology, much more analytics involved uh, than there ever were. So uh, as a result, uh, someone coming into the business needs to understand not just uh, the principles of retailing and not just uh, uh, the the, – Uh, Attraction of a, of a, you know, beautiful dress, or, or having the right shade of blue, or whatever it might be. They also need to understand um, how to use the computer, how to uh, analyze uh, data uh, and interpret results. Uh, And uh, it's just much more, as I say, much more sophisticated than it was uh, 30 years ago. uh, And every year, it just gets uh, more and more so.
1: You, you obviously are very closely linked to the uh, the Wharton School. Uh, and it just seems as though a number of businesses that have been founded by alumni from Wharton are these data folks, these data uh, hounds, very analytic, and not necessarily the the old merchant prince types or somebody who might have so we say a more artistic view on retail. is that Is that fair, do you think, or um, are we still seeing entrepreneurs from all backgrounds coming? It just seems like a lot of data-driven entrepreneurs coming in these days.
2: Yeah, I, I think there are, and I think a lot of them uh, don't really have the, the understanding of the, the key to merchandise. Uh, so it, it's great that you understand analytics really well, um, but you're not selling widgets. Uh, mm-hmm. You're selling mm-hmm. fashion. Yeah. Uh, and what we think about our business, if we don't have the right product, you know, game over right there. So yeah. it's, it's not an either or, it's an and. You've got to still have those those merchant princes or princesses. You, you've got to have uh, the analytics, and they've got to work hand in hand. Uh, and And that's where we're spending our time now is developing uh, the analytics that will help drive uh, the better decisions uh, with our merchandise.
1: Well, that's great, David. We can take a short break here. You're listening to Shopcast with my guest David Jaffe, CEO of Asina, and we'll be right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit ATCarney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarneycom forward slash consumers dash 250. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Dart, and I'm your host on ShopCast, and I'm here uh, with David Jaffe. Uh, David, uh, next set of questions I'd love to go into is a little bit around your talk at ShopTalk this week. This last uh, few weeks, I guess, a few weeks ago, uh, really enjoyed it, thought you had a lot of great points about the way in which the retail landscape has changed, the way in which retail uh, has evolved, the consumer's expectations have evolved. And I wonder if you could give us a flavor for some of the key things and highlights from that particular talk that you gave.
2: Uh, Sure, Uh, Michael. I I think the first thing is uh, that the world uh, has changed. And and first and foremost is uh, the customer's expectations have changed. So uh, just as an example, um, she's used to getting things on demand. So think Uh about Netflix. When she wants a movie, she just presses a few buttons and uh, a movie pops up on her TV. Uh, She wants great value. Uh, and uh, all the flash sale sites that have developed, uh, you know, give it, uh, you know wonderful value. Uh, she wants to be entertained, and if you, you think about uh, what some of the beauty bloggers are doing, with video, um, getting things very, very fast. You know, Amazon Prime and their and their same day or two day delivery, two hour delivery in in, in many cases. Um, she wants to be understood and known. Uh, By us, and uh, probably nobody better doing a better job of that than than Stitch Fix. Uh, So those are a a few examples of how uh, new entries or uh, businesses that have evolved uh, to serve this customer are giving her uh, opportunities to uh, have an experience that she couldn't have had whether it's five or ten years ago. Uh, So. Her expectations for all retailers uh, are different because of what she's been able to get uh, from some of the ones I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Secondly, uh, when we think about apparel, our world, um, there's been this continued shift to casualization. So uh, in the old days, uh, people used to have a separate wardrobe for work uh, and another one for kind of weekend or after work. Uh, I remember when I started out, I had a suit full of, uh, sorry, a closet full of suits. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when I came home, I'd take off my suits and put on, you know, jeans and T-shirts. Um, and, and now, it, it's kind of everybody wants this uh, middle of the road, this um, opportunity to wear uh, uh, desk to dinner uh, day into evening. Um, and it's become much more casual. And, in fact, uh, there's even an extension of that, uh, you know, this athleisure look uh, has continued to be uh, important. Uh, And so uh, when we think about where women are spending their money, it's less on structured suits and dresses uh, and more on on things like jeans and leggings. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one thing. Uh, The other thing that we've seen in the last uh, 10 years uh, is uh, consumers, particularly uh, millennials, uh, are valuing experiences over things. So mm-hmm. I don't see that just being a fashion trend. Um, th- they're much more interested in uh, going out to dinner or going on vacation than they are about owning things, whether it's apparel or a car or even a home. Uh, and we've seen this trend uh, play out um, time and time again. Uh, You know, maybe uh, going up to the obvious, uh, you know, Amazon uh, has just uh, invaded uh, everyone's home uh, and created a whole different way of doing business. Uh, So um, they're incredibly convenient. Uh, They have this long tail of selection. I think something like half of all uh, online searches uh, for product begin at Amazon, uh, and uh they capture all the information so they're making suggestions to you they're making it very easy for you to to uh rebuy products or uh consider new uh, new categories um, and uh this has kind of raised the bar for everyone else either online or or in in regular brick and mortar old uh legacy retailing uh to be able to provide that same kind of experience uh to mm-hmm. the customer um, so David and then Go ahead. Sorry.
1: I wanted to just take you back to casualization. I actually pick up on each of the major points you've made so far, and then if we can come to your next one. But casualization, do you think that's bottomed out? Is it going to continue? Uh, it seems to me that everybody now has a casual wardrobe, and I wonder whether or not we're going to, to see a change in any direction of people going more formal, or do you think even casualization's got another level that it's going to go to?
2: You know, I, I don't think it's it's going to become the world's gonna become more casual. I, I I just don't think it can get um, any more casual than it is now when you you know you walk the streets and you see people uh you know walking around in leggings. Uh that's a, I think about it as as casual as you can get. Um we do see some uh kind of green shoots popping up where some companies or uh some um, industries are beginning to go back and be a little more uh career oriented. Um, uh, young professionals uh, in many industries Mm -hmm. uh, think of the service uh, professionals whether they're consultants or accountants or bankers or lawyers uh, still want to dress professionally Uh, Mm -hmm. and the definition of professional seems to be moving back to become a little more traditional Uh, so I can't point to any specific numbers yet uh, but I I think to your point that um, you know, maybe we have bottomed down on casualization, and, you know, I think over the next, uh, you know, period, whether it's a few years or longer, I think we're going to see um, a trend back, and that's fashion. You know, it, it swings yeah. one way, and then it swings back the other.
1: Yeah, so we're not going to see blue jeans on Wall Street anytime soon.
2: I don't think so. I really
1: don't. Yeah. yeah. And then secondly, you mentioned experiences, and you talked about how millennials really value experiences over you know staff purchases um why is that do you think and and where are we on that curve in terms of uh, are the millennials about to start buying a lot of things or are they still going to uh, uh, focus on investing all of the dollars that they get from experiences
2: well i i think that there's a view out there that as millennials uh, grow up and um start having their own families that they'll Kind of get past that phase of of valuing experiences uh, over things because they're going to want to you know own a home and, and have a car and, and furniture and all that and uh, I'm I'm sure that's true to some extent. But I also think it's just a basic mindset shift that uh, a lot of folks uh, that, uh, uh, like you and I, probably grew up thinking, oh, my gosh, when I get six, turn 16 and learn how to drive, and the first thing I want to do is, is get a car. Uh, mm-hmm. That was a big goal for all of us. Um, and, yeah. and I look at uh, my four kids that are all kind of in that 20-something range, and uh, you know, none of them... Um, have a car or have aspirations of getting a car. Uh, they just don't feel it's important because they can get an Uber anywhere they need to go They don't have to worry yeah. about owning a car. It's more convenient uh, and they'd rather spend their money uh, on doing things that are, are, are more fun. Uh, so I think that's a different mindset that this generation has than uh, you know a couple prior. Um, and I, I think that's going to continue and while they will, get what they need to get as they get older and their lifestyle changes, uh, I think that's something that we've got to uh, be thoughtful about. How do we create experiences uh, to make them uh, interested in coming into our stores, as an example?
1: You know, I saw some data the other day which was uh, interesting, just to your point about uh, uh, people driving and that was that uh, for 18 year olds today, I think it's the lowest percentage measured uh, since these been doing these surveys of, of young people who have a driver's license uh, who have a, a job, who or ever had a job, uh, who've actually gone out on a first date, or even tried alcohol. So it seems like there's a, a number of milestones that our generation, uh, for a variety of reasons, thought were really important, that becoming a lot less important to millennials. So right. very interesting. Um, yeah. Let me pick up on experiences a little bit. One of the things which, uh, you know, I hear all the time, and actually obviously been talking about for a long time, is the need to create experiences. But it seems to me that there's a, you know, a lack of creativity quite often in, in how people think about creating experiences. It's often just you know, retailers saying we need to put a coffee shop in, uh, in the store, et cetera. Curious if you have any thoughts about what, uh, what people need to be thinking about in terms of defining a great experience for their consumer.
2: Well, I think when someone comes into a store, um, they want to have a special experience. Uh, we like to think of our stores as kind of that third place, you know, this home office. And no, it's not Starbucks. It's, it's our store. And yeah, yeah. if you think about it, um, this woman uh, is uh, you know, it, under a lot of pressure uh, at home. Maybe she's got a family, a husband, what have you. And then she goes to work and she's got other pressure. And so she comes to our store. This is her time. She's got no one else that she's got to worry about uh, except herself. So we want to give her great experience. And it may be she just wants to browse. Um yeah. But maybe she wants to have an engagement uh, engagement with one of our sales associates or, or fashion consultants, as we like to say, uh, that can help her uh, pick out an outfit, that can help her understand what the current trends are, uh, and uh, you know maybe uh, help her uh, avoid some of those uh, fashion faux pas. So uh, we see ourselves in our stores as providing an experience that she can't get when she shops online. Uh, We're there to support her. Uh, You know, if she comes out of the fitting room and something doesn't fit her uh, properly, we're going to tell her. Uh, We'd rather be uh, authentic and and get her trust uh, than just try and sell a garment.
1: Sounds like the human side of those experiences are really, really important and something that Again, uh, a lot of retailers have downplayed over many, many years, but is it becoming increasingly important? Do you think, do you think that's fair as well? Yeah, I
2: think, I think some of the, uh, the models out there um, are really self-serve. Uh, and so if you think about the department store... Uh, it's tough to get um, a lot of help in a department store. It's just the way their model has evolved. Obviously, the deep discount guys, whether it's the, the TJ Maxx's and Ross's of the world, or uh, the big boxes like you know Target and Walmart, whatever, are essentially self serve models. Mm-hmm. Um, our businesses are all boutiques. Uh, we are a specialty store operator, and so our goal is to provide as high level of service as we can. But also, we're working to try and create special experiences. So let me give you an example, uh, Michael. Uh, just uh, over the weekend at our Justice uh, uh, brands, uh, we had a fashion show. So uh, the girls could come in. Sign them mm-hmm. to be in the fashion show and have a fun experience you know with their mom or grandma or whoever it might be uh, kind of uh-huh. watching and helping them get ready and it 's just a fun thing that they can 't do online uh, and they 're with a whole group of other girls, and everybody gets to participate uh, and it 's a bonding thing uh, for the girls and something that they you know they can 't really do any 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 other store as well, um, so that would be one extreme. Just to give you another quick one, um, at Lane Bryant, uh, we sell uh, intimate apparel through our cacique line, uh, Mm -hmm. and we do bra fittings. So we help a woman uh, get the appropriate size bra. And as you, you may know, one of those statistics is uh, 60% of women are wearing the wrong size bra. So mm-hmm. that service, and it really doesn't get much more intimate than that, uh, is really important uh, to create that, that bond, that emotional connection with our customer uh, and, and create uh, a loyal relationship.
1: One of the things which I think is so true in retail is that you know, in a very simple equation, if experiences aren't greater than convenience – then that retail format has no reason to be because uh, the convenience world, as you pointed out, with Amazon and so many other companies, Stitch Fix or others, is becoming so, uh, so dominant that if you're going to go to the store, then that experience has to be something that is really meaningful, important, and valuable to the consumer. Otherwise, why not just stay at home and, uh, and play on your smartphone? So right. uh, very interesting.
2: Right. And, and um, look at Best Buy. Uh, they've yep. made a, a wonderful comeback um, and I think part of it is that you know, you can, if you know what you want, you can always buy it online, whether it's from Best Buy or any place else. But if you're saying, "Gosh, I'm not really sure which TV I want, or or yeah. you know, or what I should be buying for this appliance or whatever," and I want to kick the tires, uh, you go in and they know what they're talking about. You get an experienced uh, a salesperson uh, that can really help you make the right decision.
1: I think that's a great example because. Uh, you know, for so long, people thought that sector, and I must say I was pretty down on the electronic sector as being one that could possibly compete against Amazon. Uh, but the level of service, the bravery that they had as a leadership team to uh, make it price transparent with online and to match online pricing and then configure their economic model to support that, that combination actually looks like it's paying off uh, really well and certainly uh, was counter, I think, to a lot of the uh, the intuition that a lot of folks had about the uh, position of electronics and best buy specifically but they have done a great job
2: Yep, yeah, for sure
1: well i'm michael dart i'm here with david jaffe uh we're going to take a short break and we'll be returning to discuss more about what's happening in retail and specifically some of the ideas david has for his business
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Kearney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atkearney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com/forward/slash/consumers-250. We're tuned in to Shopcast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Dart. This is Shopcast, and I'm here with David Jaffe, CEO of Asena. And we're talking about everything that's changing in retail today. Now, David, at the beginning of the show, um I spent a little bit of time outlining my ideas on the concept of becoming a platform, or platforming as I call it, and a belief that uh, the most successful businesses today take this mindset of looking at themselves as a platform and looking at all of their assets and all of their relationships to try and create new businesses, try and change the cost structure, to leverage different parts of the organization in new and imaginative ways. I know that's something that you've been spending quite a lot of time thinking about, um, I'd love to get a little bit of the history of how that's evolved and then specifically what, uh, what you're thinking about doing in the future along that dimension.
2: Sure. Uh, Michael, as you may recall, uh, Athena grew through acquisition. So we've made uh, four acquisitions uh, over the past uh, 12 or 13 years. And uh, with each one, uh, we saw more opportunities to combine things. So uh, where we are today... Um, is is really that we've developed a shared service model uh... so that incorporates centers of excellence that incorporates uh... consolidating uh... facilities uh... and, and talent uh... so that rather than have as an example um, uh... five different uh... distribution centers uh... You know, we we really needed only uh... one and we just recently opened up another one on the west coast Uh, to to get the the transportation savings. So if you think about that, uh, that goes uh, across a lot of different functional areas. Uh, The concept was really simple. As we got bigger, uh, we realized uh, that we could uh, centralize and standardize our approach to doing back office work. So anything that face the customer. Think mm-hmm. merchandising, marketing, um, and the uh, customer experience. We wanted the brands to own, whether it was that it was online or in-store. Um, but anything that the customer uh, didn't see and wasn't affected directly by, we felt we could standardize so, um, and centralize. So if you think about uh, sourcing, uh, if you think about transportation, uh, distribution, fulfillment, uh, you know, think, uh, procurement, non merch procurement, uh, I can go on and on, uh, mm-hmm. but we've been able to develop a model that's much more efficient. Uh, than uh, we had when we were operating the brand separately. Uh, and this has been going on for a number of years, and we're, we're almost at the very end uh, of the process. So um, we're, we're really pleased we've been able to take out literally hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of cost from our business by, by switching to this approach. Um, so, so that's kind of phase one. Um, Mm -hmm. And and while it's been ongoing and we've developed this this shared service model, what we've also developed is is this platform, as you referred to, um, and phase two, uh, which uh, we're beginning to think about and develop kind of a uh, a working business plan for, is can we use uh, that platform uh, as an opportunity to invent a new business to go outside uh, and offer our services to third parties? So when you think of, of the Amazon model, uh, they mm-hmm. said, hey, we need to have these server farms, and if we're going to build them for ourselves, um, why not uh, let other people uh, use them, uh, and we'll make money uh, in that business as well. Um, and uh, Amazon Web Services, as I'm sure you know, is a you know, huge business, incredibly successful, and really the, the cash generator, the profit generator uh, for, uh, for Amazon. So while we don't uh, have visions of becoming uh, the next AWS, uh, we do have uh, uh, some excess capacity. We do have uh, some really strong centers of excellence that can be leveraged, uh, and we see that as a win-win, both for uh, ourselves to be able to leverage what we've built uh, as well as for clients that come in uh, and get the benefit of of our size, but also our expertise.
1: And David, as you think about... Leveraging your assets for others to use in the same way you use the analogy with, uh, or the example or other of uh, Amazon. Are you looking for startups who could leverage your infrastructure, or is it scale retailers who, facing tough markets, facing a need to reconfigure their economics, could actually hand over a lot of their operations to, for you to run, or is it both? I'm just curious.
2: Well, we're, we're probably thinking of the latter first. You know, mm-hmm. because we've got we're you know a, f- a fairly large company, and um, you know I- if you're working with a, a, a startup, uh, you're going to spend almost as much time as if you're working with a, a mature company that's doing a billion dollars, and obviously the uh, the numbers make more sense uh, the bigger it is. Uh, having said that, um, you know we we've grown through acquisition, and we really love the idea of being able to. Uh, become maybe uh, think of it as an incubator uh, for some of these businesses, where uh, they've got a great merchant perhaps or uh, a great uh, uh, vision as to you know how they can uh, approach the market differently, and uh, we could provide the back end uh, kind of like sweat equity and and help these businesses grow in a way that um, you know a venture, a venture capital firm uh, couldn't.
1: hmm And and these models. It, it, traditionally when I've looked at them seem pretty complicated and hard to to get to smooth operations for the for the organization to understand how they're going to function so I was curious whether you've experienced that and how the leadership has evolved during the course of this process in order to make sure that uh, everything is working smoothly and you, you said you're at the back end of this right now so I'm sure that uh, there's been an awful lot of lessons learned during the course of this journey.
2: Um, you know, that's right. It's, it's not like this is um, like falling out of bed. This is hard work, uh, and uh, we've uh, taken advantage of uh, some uh, great partners, uh, consulting partners, uh, a- as well as uh, we've put in some great leadership. Um, and uh, if you ask these leaders that are running these, these functions uh, what their job is, uh, they'll tell you their job is to serve the brands, uh, and mm-hmm. they've done a wonderful job of adapting to the needs of the brands um, and And really, that's the mantra. If you think about it, um, you know we've had to integrate uh, eight brands. you know we we mm-hmm. have eight different brands, some bigger than others, obviously. Um, yeah. but integrating the eight brands, we've learned a lot. And so now we think to go outside um, and and p- perhaps bring in uh, a customer or two. Uh, wouldn't be that hard because as as I said you know we've we've already done this eight times and and learned the lessons a- along the way
1: and so if there's a large retailer who looks at their infrastructure whether or not that's the DCs whether not that potentially could be things like HR or IT uh, and says we need to lower our costs we need to um, avoid making a huge capital investment in area because um, well, for whatever reason, that revenue outlook may be uncertain. We're not sure if we have uh, want to spend our time focused on that. You'd be the partner who could basically take on that big project for them. And it sounds like a completely new business to you in many ways versus what I've traditionally thought about uh, everything that you're doing. But is, there, is that right?
2: Uh, that is right, Michael. You know, we're we're just uh, still in the planning phase of it. I don't want to get you too excited that, uh, you know, this is going to be our next billion-dollar business. Uh, but as we look out, um, we don't see anybody else doing this from soup to nuts. Uh, we can yeah. partner with someone, and uh, obviously having one, uh, one uh, player rather than three or four or more uh, that are handling some of these functions for you is much more efficient. Uh, and because... Uh, of our size uh, and our clout uh, and our sophistication, we've put in you know, very, very sophisticated systems, uh, I think that uh, most companies uh, are going to find a benefit not just in terms of the cost savings but also in terms of the capabilities that we have for our own business that are obviously uh, transferable over to, uh, to a customer.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there others out there who are doing this and taking this model forward to the market or are you, are you a pioneer in this one?
2: Well, uh, there's certainly lots of folks that are doing pieces of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not aware of anybody uh, that's that's uh, doing this, this, this same uh, platform or, or shared service uh, approach uh, and bringing it to the market. So, uh, you know, it's still something that uh, you know the market hasn't uh, voted and said, "Oh, yeah, this is a great idea," uh, and and uh, we're um, you know we're going to be testing it, make sure that it does work before we certainly uh, I- I ramp it up. Uh, but I do think it makes a lot of sense, and we've had a lot of good conversations with our board about this, and and they're supporting us, uh, very supportive of us uh, 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 testing it.
1: Oh, really interesting. So you you obviously you understand a lot of the dynamics of the change in retail today. Uh, you've got a a business model that's responded to that as well as a lot of new growth ideas as being one of them. I'm curious, what do you think is the, the biggest challenge that you faced as a leader uh, in retail and, and what do you think are some of the biggest challenges you see other leaders facing in retail to to meet this uh, dynamic environment and all these changes and all these new requirements?
2: Well, I, I think the thing that I've learned is uh, y- you can't assume that uh, tomorrow is going to be the same as yesterday. Mm-hmm. And when I started out my career, um you know, back when it was Dress Barn, uh, we were opening up stores as fast as we could. Um, the, the world uh, was flocking to uh, these chain specialty stores in, in our world and uh, other chains, you know, whether it was Walmart or Target or, you know, any any other, TJ Maxx, you know, all these uh, brands were growing rapidly and the bigger you got uh, the more efficient you became um, and so it was just basically um, adding more and more stores uh to your core base um, and the challenges uh were very different uh, than they are today there was no uh, internet or e-commerce business. Uh, You didn't have a lot of these these little startups coming up that were offering a new twist Uh, you know whether it was a a Stitch Fix or a a flash sale site like Rue La La Um, and so you were competing against other retailers and for much of that time during a lot of the uh, the specialty stores and chains growth it was against the mom and pops. So a lot of those businesses went out uh, out of business Um, in the uh, the 70s and 80s. Um, And then it was the regional chains that that went out of business in the 90s. And then all of a sudden, the Internet came along. And so today, our challenge is how do we reinvent the business to be relevant um, and compelling to our customer? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what we did before worked uh, before, but it doesn't work today. So how do we evolve our model and our approach to the customer uh, to to be exciting to her.
1: And since you mentioned it, I'd love you to to comment on what you think is the future of stores in that particular environment. Where are we going with it? A lot of people, obviously, very pessimistic. I, obviously, as you know, believe that we need to rationalise a lot of stores. I'm curious how you think about the role of stores in the future.
2: Well, the thing about stores uh, is that um, they are are much more than simply selling product. So today, uh, at least with our brands, um, you can uh, buy online and pick up in the store. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can go to the store, and if we don't have your size, you can buy online in the store uh, and ship to your home or to the store, and and every permutation uh, thereof. So stores become fulfillment centers, they become pickup points, they become uh, try-on. You know, if you think of the, the, uh, the Bonobos model or the Untucked model, uh, they don't actually have inventory. They just have sizes that you can try on. Uh, and then once you know your size, you can order the product that you want either in-store or online. So that's the extreme of it. Um, I do believe uh, that women enjoy shopping, that uh, women like to uh, treat themselves to an experience like that, uh, where, again, as I said at the beginning of the show, um, it's about her time. Uh, so we need to make that experience as, uh, as um, you know, relaxing and comfortable as possible for her. Just as an aside, none of our sales associates are on commission. We don't think that's the right environment uh, to, uh, to put our customer into. So uh we uh, we believe that stores will be around maybe uh, uh a bit fewer than there are today uh but those stores are going to be important to our customer uh whether it's a kind of a showcase uh or uh a fulfillment center or what have you um the customer still enjoys uh looking at product uh in, in a store setting rather than you know being able to touch and feel it and try it on rather than just looking at it uh, online
1: you're listening to Shopcast and with David Jaffe and Michael Dark talking about retail. We're gonna take a short break and then we'll be right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash voiceamerica.
0: Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? AT Kearney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit ATKearney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash
3: 250. You're tuned
0: in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back to ShopCast. I'm here with David Jaffe, and we're talking about retail. David, to wrap up, I've got just uh, maybe a couple of quick questions. The first one is, as you look out on the retail landscape, who do you admire out there? Who's doing really innovative things? Um, Who's being really creative? Curious if you've got any thoughts on that.
2: Uh, in a general sense, I'd say the folks that are doing a rental and subscription are, are interesting. I think that's a whole new model for clothing, uh, and there are a few guys uh, that are doing it really well. Uh, so I think that's worth watching. Um, specifically, it's not quite apparel, but it's close. Um, I think Sephora is just doing an amazing job, uh, more than anyone else I've seen, of, of integrating the online and the in-store experience. Uh, So uh, I'm a big fan of of what they've been able to achieve.
1: That's interesting. And you mentioned as well, uh, when we were talking at one point, you really like Walmart's store number eight. Do you want to just explain what that is and and what they're doing a little bit?
2: Sure. Uh, Store number eight uh, is uh, their uh, incubator for new e-commerce ideas. And I'm sure some of the ideas may actually go into brick and mortar. But uh, what they're doing is trying to get ahead of the curve uh, and rather than react to things that are happening uh, uh, from other uh, startups or what have you, they're trying to actually do it themselves, get uh, in front of uh, what some of the other trends are that uh, other online retailers may be doing and, and try and uh, beat them at their own game. So uh, kudos to them uh, and, and Mark Lohr and, and his team over there uh, for uh, really trying to to push the edge of the envelope with a uh, you know a behemoth like Walmart,
1: and you think Walmart will be a really effective online competitor against Amazon?
2: Uh, I do. Uh, I think that um, everyone wants to see a competitor to Amazon, and as uh, Walmart continues to up their game in fashion. Uh, and uh they're developing a a marketplace with Lord and Taylor as you may have heard uh and I think we'll see some some big changes uh with Walmart's website uh as a result of that. Uh and I think they're just they're just too big and and too innovative now uh with uh with Mark Lore and this store number eight uh to be counted out.
1: Well David I must say it uh it has been great chatting with you today. It's incredible what's happening in retail, just the level of change, the rate of change, and all of the new ideas and thoughts that retailers like yourself have to try and take us to a, a new place in retailing history. So thank you for joining. I really appreciate it. It's
2: been a pleasure.
1: And if you have any questions for David, uh, then feel free to email me, and you can reach me at shopcast at A.T. Kearney, that's dot ycom and I'll be sure to forward those to David and uh, in future shows potentially address some of those questions. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, really appreciated it, and look forward to talking about retail next week.
0: Thank you for listening to ShopCast, talking retail strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.